And I found myself in Lepi that day, excited to be there, supporting my team, lovely day. And then obviously, you know, events unfolded and I found myself fighting for my life. Welcome to the Wellbeing Champions podcast, brought to you by Loon Base. My name is Aaron. And my name is Tom. This is the Wellbeing Champions podcast, where we bring you pearls of wisdom from the best and brightest in the wellbeing world. We aim to share knowledge and learn from others on how to enable people to truly work and live well. Today's guest is Martin Roberts. Martin is the mental health lead at Lloyds Banking Group in Group Transformation. He used his own lived experience of mental illness to help implement a mental health agenda across all of his 10,000 colleagues. He introduces novel and exciting initiatives that engage and support his colleagues. Martin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Aaron. So, Martin, we like to kick off each show with a little warm-up round just to get the juices flowing. So, I'll ask first, tea or coffee? Tea. Tea. Any particular brand? PG Tips. And uh, do you have a favourite book, fiction or non-fiction? Still, I'm read the Stephen Gerrard uh, autobag for the moment. Oh, great. And is there a top purchase in the last year that has boosted your own well-being? Yes, thanks to the Headspace app, uh, which we promote within uh, Lloyd's Banking Group. Good. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, really, yeah, really powerful stuff. Um, yeah, definitely. And you mentioned you're a Liverpool fan, so uh, Dalgleish or Klopp? Oh, wow, what a question. <laughs> uh, it would have to be Dag Leash because he was my hero when I used to go watch him and stand on the cops. So, yeah, it would have to be Dag Leash. And if you could have a giant billboard anywhere in the world, so essentially getting the message out to millions or billions of people, what would you write on the billboard and why? It's okay, to, it's okay not to be okay to try and create that safe environment for people to put their hand up and say, do you know what, I'm having a bad day. And where would it be? Probably Times Square in New York. Yeah, as many as many people as possible. Post pandemic, post pandemic Times Square when yeah, 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 when it's, yeah. When, it's, when it's when it's really busy yeah. again. <laughs> Might be a bit quiet at the moment. <laughs> um, so Martin, I mean, you've got a really powerful story, and I'd love I'd love for you to introduce yourself to the audience and tell us, you know, how you got into the current role that you're at within the transformation division at, at Lloyd's Banking Group. No, that, that's fine. So, so if I start where I suppose where I started my journey, if that, if that helps, yeah. Uh, so my mental health journey, I think, starts on the 15th of April, 1989. I went to a football match over at Sheffield, watched Liverpool and Not- Nottingham Forest in the semi-final of the FA Cup. As people will know, it then uh, turned out to be one of the worst football disasters ever known, the Hillsborough football disaster. And I found myself in Leppings Lane that day, excited to be there, supporting my team, lovely day. And then, obviously, you know, events unfolded and I found myself fighting for my life. Thankfully, thank God, I got out, but only got out by other people helping me. You know, I climbed over, and, you know, sometimes it's, I don't like to say it, but I climbed over men, women and children to survive, to get out. Uh, and I managed to get out on that uh, that fateful day. Unfortunately, 90 other six people lost their lives. And... Really, for me, that was probably the start of my mental health journey, but I never knew it would not manifest itself until nearly 30 years later. The turmoil that day, I put to one side. And, you know, when you're going back to, you know, 18, I think 21 at the time, when it came home in the afternoon to see my parents and my parents didn't even know if I was alive or not, mental health, the word mental health, was never talked about. You know, and even the days after, I didn't talk to my parents. I didn't realise I was having a, a mental health challenge. Uh, because again, the negative connotations that come with the word mental is something that it was dismissed. You know, I was a person of, who had a career at the time, just had a career in banking. And unless you had a broken arm, broken leg, you just got on with it. Unfortunately, and I use the word unfortunately, that's what I did. I got on with it. 
and I pushed it all to all to one side. And I don't, I certainly, you know, don't blame the way I was brought up, but, you know, it, you know, it was something that we never discussed as a family and probably because of the generation. And that's why I think that generation then is the, the events now catching up with us. And the fact that we've not talked about mental health, emotional health, physical health. And I think that's why given the pandemic we find where we find ourselves today, that's why a lot of people have struggled with the pandemic because it was something they never faced into years uh, years gone by and it's only now that people are realizing wow my physical my mental and emotional is important it's important to my personal life it's also important to my professional life as well so then over time you know i threw myself into work as you do wanted a great career i got married i wanted to progress as high as i could within uh, lloyd's banking group and i just you know life was good if i'm quite honest because i've got that history behind me and then you know got married to Belinda I've got two children my eldest Oliver is training to be a doctor so he's in Manchester in his final year and I've got a 16 year old who's just had his GCSEs cancelled obviously due to uh, due to the pandemic and then three years ago things started to unravel itself I was working long hours I wasn't the person uh, probably would people would associate me as being you know not quite a good person quite active quite social and I found myself making excuses not to go out and socialise with people. And sometimes, you know, this is probably embarrassing. I would make uh, excuses, I would fake illnesses not to go out and speak to people and see people. And I started to spiral into, a, I suppose, a depth of uh, depression. And my wife realised that I probably wasn't well. And she would ask me, are you OK? And she thought, you give that answer straight away. Yeah, I'm OK. But she didn't know to, you know, maybe delve down, but, you know, beyond, are you okay? Are you really, really okay? And that's just something I advocate with the work that I do within, uh, within group transformation, the Lloyds Banking Group. Don't ask once, ask twice, ask three times. So that time, yeah, I give the, you know, the Pakistan dancer, yes, I'm fine. And it was all the, the male stigma, you know, the macho thing. I didn't want to associate myself as being somebody who was probably in need of mental health support. You know, what impact would it have on my career? It was my problem to have. It certainly wasn't my family's problem to sort out. So I tried to soldier through. I tried to match through. But eventually, spinning all those many plays, some of them would eventually start to come crashing down. And the way they came crashing down is at the time, two and a half years ago, my wife was diagnosed with a bone tumour. My dad was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And my mother, three, four years ago, died of dementia. And then trying to, you know, manage all that. It just became too much. So I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't probably sleeping for months and months in getting, you know, really good, good sleep hygiene. I would have two or three hours of sleep at night. Uh, and we all know, you know, lack of sleep is one of the biggest causes of mental health-related conditions, but I didn't know it at the time. And one night, and I know this sounds really, really strange, I attended my own funeral. And what I mean by that is I looked from the outside in. I dreamt I was awake at the time, so I suppose I can't, can't dream, but... I attended me on fuel and they'll see what people would say if I wasn't there, you know, you know, what would they say, what would they think? And for the first time for a number of years, I felt at peace with myself. I felt as if this was a way I could get rest. It was an option that really I wanted to consider. And I knew then that what I had to do was to take myself away from my family because I felt I'd become a burden to my wife, to my children. I wasn't the husband or the father I wanted to be. So that morning, I decided to put the plans into action. I got dressed early that morning and I was going to go to commit suicide. And why, I don't know. My wife woke up and stopped me. And 
at that point then, I did the most two important things I will ever, ever do in my life. And as a parent, you always remember your children's first steps and your children's first words. That morning, I took two steps forward and said, I need help. They will be the most important steps and words I will ever say. And it was at that point then that my wife realised I was in crisis. So I sat on the end of bed with my wife. And at that point then, I just unburdened myself with everything that had happened and how I felt, I suppose. And it felt a relief, a huge relief. And uh, we talked for for a number of hours. And then she didn't want to leave me for a number of reasons. But then they did the most most other strange thing uh, that people sometimes can't comprehend. Two or three hours later, I got dressed and I went into work. And and I look back and reflect and people say, how on earth can you go into work when you've got to go commit suicide and take your own life? But somehow I had to rationale, I had to reason with myself and talk to somebody at work. I had to rationale in my own mind that what I was doing, I had no choice. And just to speak to somebody else. So I went to work and I waited for my line manager at the time and she, she played a huge part in my recovery to come in. And I took her in the office and I told her from start to finish how it felt, where I'd now got to them and what I was going to do that morning. And at that point then, hypothetically, and it was in, in reality as well, that person and Lloyd's Banking Group wrapped their arms around me. And what they did then is literally took me under their care and protection. And my line manager at that time didn't leave my side for the hour. She marched me, literally marched me, held my hand and walked me to my doctor's. She sat with me till my doctor saw me. And then at that point, told the GP exactly how I felt, what I was prepared to do. My line manager then phoned up my family. My son came to the surgery. And at that point, then she left me in the care of my family. Went home with my son. Obviously, like I said, trained to be a doctor. And again, I told him what was happening. At that point, then the crisis team then became involved. They came out to see me that late afternoon and they wanted to admit me to the hospital. And I said, no, I want to stay at home. But I think deep down, I wanted to be admitted. But to say I wanted to go into a, a mental health hospital was another barrier, was another stigma that I couldn't cope with. But I knew I had to. So reluctantly, I I suppose not, I didn't give in to the pressure. I had nowhere else to turn. I knew my family were in a position to help me. I had to somehow be accepting of the help and support that was available. So I was admitted to a mental health hospital on the premise it was for a couple of days with some rest. That turned out to be for three weeks. I made a further attempt uh, on my life. And whether that was for attention, I don't know. But I, over the years gone by, I've driven past that mental health hospital. But, for, but now I've found myself in that hospital where in the past I probably said, well, you probably get all sorts of people in there, you know, you know, people who are mad, etc. Yeah, I've used those words. But my God, I now find myself in that room with mesh on the windows, in with no rails, no coat hangers, in a room isolated by myself. And it's at that point then I had to really, I had to be accepting of all the help that was available. So over three weeks I took on the care and support. Uh, and I suppose I unwired myself and I unwired myself to my uh, physical feelings, my emotional feelings, my mental feelings. And at that point then, I accepted to be kind to myself. For 30 years, I've probably not I've been, I've been a husband, I've been a father, I've been a clear-minded person, I've been the, you know, the laugh at the party, the jovial type of person. But somehow now I have to say, wow, this is my time now to try and look after myself, as difficult as it would be. 
So I had to think I stripped myself naked and I was accepting to be to be the help of the health support and had to look at how we've been wide my feelings. So that went over a period of three weeks through medications, through CBT, EMDR, etc. Got the support. I was then I used the word released. It felt like I was <laughs> released. Yeah. Uh, back into support of the family. Uh, and then over a period of time, six to eight weeks maybe, then tried to gradualise my face myself back into that home life. But the trust or the lack of trust never left my wife because when I came home, I might have said, well, I'm going out for a walk just to get some exercise, some fresh air. But there was always that niggle at the back of the mind. Where's he going? Has he got his mobile? How can we make sure we keep him safe? And that took months, months and months to build that trust back up. And throughout the whole period, Lloyds Banking Group, my manager, kept in touch with me. They went at my pace. They engaged with me. They wanted to do anything they could to help and support. But everything was done with my, supposed permission. And, then, you know, they could keep building me up because I wanted to get back to work. I didn't want to be off any work any longer than what I needed to be because against that thing, what would people say? You know, God, it's been off you know, three, four, five months. You know, what would people say? So I was keen to come back to work. And then that was over a gradual period of time. I transitioned myself. Once I got into a good space at home, my next step was then how could I come back to work? And that was done with the support and guidance of my GP. You know, they didn't want to rush me. They wanted to make sure I kept on the medication, kept on uh, with therapy, etc., kept on with the exercise, you know, to try and remove that distraction uh, of work. But eventually I transitioned back into work on uh, hours or therapeutic hours. I think it was an hour a day for the first two or three weeks, which for me, working to work for an hour a day, by the time you put your laptop on and got set ready, it was time to go home. That felt really, really uncomfortable. But, you know, at the time, I wasn't comfortable with it, but my manager kept holding that memory up and just being that point of checkpoint to say, you know, just take your time. And it's only now I realised that that was so, so important, the fact that, Everything was done at my pace. Nothing was rushed. And, you know, the time I made us sort of seen that, but absolutely seen that now, that was absolutely critical to get me back into the work full time. So that period went on for about, I think, about six months. And then transitioned, then I came back to work full time. And I sat at my desk and thinking, what do we do now? I can carry on being the programme manager that I was. I can carry on with a career that I wanted. But things have changed over, you know, piece in the last 12 months. You know, what's happened to me? I can't change the past, but I can try to change the future. And what's happened is part of my DNA. I wish I could change it, but I can't. And so I wanted to give something back. And I was on a conversation with my line manager and within our division, we were going through a number of changes. And she, she said, well, why don't you speak to one of, our, one of the directors to see if you can, you can do something supportive to support colleagues who are maybe going through some of their own challenges, given the organisational change we're going through. So I approached my director and said, you know, is there anything I can do side of the desk in addition to my programme manager role? Uh, where can we support colleagues with their well-being, given uh, some challenges that they may be going through? And I think within an hour or two hours, she came back, what a great idea. We'll put you in that position for you know a few months, and it's just grown arms and legs. So on the twenty, I think twenty eighth, fourth of January, twenty eighteen, I sat at my desk with a blank piece of paper. And I remember the day now, thinking, "Oh my God, what what have I asked for? Where do I start with this? I've got no experience in mental health and wellbeing. How do I know what colleagues want? How do I you know get them support? Where do I start?" But from just some small ideas. 
it has just grown, grown and grown uh, to a point now whereby as mental health leads within group transformation, we've done a whole host of things over the last two years and nobody, nobody in business would have this pandemic, but the whole mental health, emotional health, physical health, it's been blown, it's been put onto a stage now. And my view is, if we don't grasp the opportunity that this pandemic has given us, try to take something positive out, something, no, something so negative, we will never, ever get this opportunity again, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully. So we've got to grasp it with both hands. So it's now evolved into the role that I've now got as a mental health lead within, uh, within group transformation. We've done a whole lot of initiatives over the last two years. But I think going back to a point you may mention at the very beginning, Tom, it's the colleague story. It's the personal story. Yeah. And it's not about me. It's not about what I went through because we all go through our challenges. Some are more severe than others, absolutely. But it's about how we can take things forward, how we can take something so negative, so dark at that moment in time and try to put something so positive. And again, it's not about me. It's about showing vulnerability and showing it is okay not to be okay. And just by taking two steps, literally taking two steps and saying, I need some help can absolutely be life-changing, but life-changing in such a positive way. Absolutely. And I suppose the first thing I want to say is thank you for sharing your story and then listen to it here. We were completely transfixed. It's a it's a really powerful story. It's amazing you've got to this point where you can so openly, you know, share it and discuss. And I think the power then to say to others, look, this is an experience I've lived through. This is where I've got to. Please, if you're struggling, talk about your mental health. Um, and there's, there's two points I'd like to raise. The first one being this, that your story is very typical, unfortunately, for male mental health and for men who are in the working population at work. And it shows you that you can have colleagues in your organisations who have got such a severe depression that, that they're planning their own suicide, planning to take their own life, and they could still be destined to you, or they could still be on a Zoom call with you. And even though some of the warning signs are there, they still kind of battle on regardless. You mentioned your sleep was poor, you know, you felt a burden on your family, low self-esteem. Yeah. All those symptoms were there, but still, you know, there's still this kind of male pride, this, this societal issue that we've got, you know, particularly in male depression, of that we kind of plough on regardless and stiff up a lip. Yeah, and I'm so grateful that you, you've got to this point now, and I'd say that that crisis, my other point was really, was how well managed the crisis was by you know what a gold standard example of managing somebody presenting in crisis in work of your manager and I don't know I don't know if you want to mention her name or not but um, but um, Wendy Martin I right. mean like I say she was phenomenal and the other point I want to mention if it's okay Tom, yeah, yeah. on on that morning when I was in the mental health hospital uh, my wife threw away all the clothes that reminded her of that day the only thing she didn't throw away we'll never know why was a pair of brown shoes and okay a pair of brown shoes. But for whatever reason, I put those shoes on that morning and I was going to go to where I was going to go to take my own life. So they were going to take me on a path that, you know, would have had a huge impact on a lot of people. But now the symbol now of the path that I now walk and when I've gone to external presentation, I wear those brown shoes because they remind me of the path that I could have gone on. Yeah. But more importantly now, they remind me of the path that I now walk on day in, day out, hopefully trying to help and support us and showing it's, you know, my vulnerability and showing that there, is, there can always be light at the end of that real dark tunnel. And for me, the probably the most important personal obsession, and, and I'll have a simple pair of brown shoes. Yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, say about about Wendy that she, yeah, she exemplified a gold standard in terms of somebody presenting in crisis. The advice is, if somebody's expressing that they're in this position, stay with them, listen to them, you know, empathetically. If you can, if they're open to it, go and seek help directly and take them to seek help exactly as she did. Um, and in my practice, I probably see people presenting, and it's always men, 
um, but people presenting in, in such dire circumstances, maybe five, six times a year like this. And we say, you know, your GP will take you seriously, 100%. This, you know, if I see this presentation, and I've had it a few times on the phone recently because of because of the pandemic, um, and obviously we, we telephone triage all consultations first. But when you get this on your phone, for me, it's the warning sign that you drop everything else because, you know, because this is really, really serious. Everything else can go to the side for, for 10, 20, 30 minutes, bring the person in um, and, and get, you know, get them the help they need um, uh, sooner rather than later. And I'm glad, you know, I'm glad that that was your experience, that you had somebody that, you know, that did listen to you, got you in front of the crisis team and, you know, inevitably very difficult three-week admission, I, I can completely understand. And obviously, like you said, a, you know, a, a real six-month trajectory before you were back to work full-time. You hit the nail on the head, Tom, in the fact you used the word listen. I think a lot of people are sometimes hesitant that they get a peer person in front of them who's really struggling is, what do I say? I might say the wrong things. But at that point then, I didn't need to be a guide to sort of this support is support there. I just needed somebody to, to listen to me. Yeah. And that's what it was, to listen to me. It can be the most easy thing to do, but yet it can be the most difficult thing to do. Because people do become afraid of saying the wrong things. They might, you know, send him, you know, timber or this, whatever it may be. But I, at that point then, I just needed somebody to listen, listen to me. And I think given this pandemic and where we find ourselves today, I think we're in a situation whereby... We have to listen differently and we have to act, act differently to where we were 12 months ago. And, you know, it's so important that word, just listen. That's sometimes all, all, you, all you need. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. And that, yeah, again, uh, that, that one of the most powerful things you can do is just, you know, just listen, um, acknowledge, acknowledge what people are feeling and then, you know, when appropriate, guide them to some support. You mentioned the initiatives that you've taken hold of in the past couple of years and, and are driving forward within the transformation group. Tell us one that you're kind of most proud about and the one that, you know, one that you really stand by and, and you want to share with people. I think the one that really stands out is probably the first initiative that we ran and that was the Tuning Choir Group. And where all that stemmed from was also from the first presentation I did around my own story. And it was an event in uh, London at uh, St John Lewis's office. I was invited to go and tell my own story, but more importantly, tell around what I was trying to do within the division within Lloyds Banking Group. And after my presentation, a couple of guys came up to me and said, have you ever thought about singing? And I thought, me personally, I said, no, because I, I can't, I can't sing. <laughs> so it's enough singing in the workplace. Thought, well, that's even worse. <laughs> so I said, no. What about setting up a, a choir within uh, your work group? You know, because there's a number of benefits to singing. It's great for the whole, you know, for endorphins, creating that, that great good feel, but also creating that community spirit. So to cut a long story short, I gave some idea that a bit of research on the benefits of singing uh, for mental health and, and well-being. And I put a proposal together and went to my director, who was a director who put me in the position and said, I've got an idea. I'd like to set up a choir group within uh, within Lloyd's Banking Group. And I got a few, you know, strange glances, but fair credit to my director. Let's give it a go. And I think that's a lot of things in, in the fact that we've got to do things inevitably different with mental health and wellbeing. We can't keep doing things the same old, same old way. We've got to do things that engage us with people so directly, indirectly, developing their own mental health and well-being and maybe helping the, other, the well-being of their family and their friends, etc. So I got the proposal together and I sent an, an email out to a number of different areas within, within group transformation with Lloyds Banking Group and I engaged with a company called Ensemble and we set up small choir groups in Manchester, Bristol, Edinburgh, West Yorkshire and uh, Edinburgh. 
every Wednesday for one hour, a facilitator would come in and teach us how to sing. And I think the first couple of weeks we got two or three people there across each of the five uh, five car sites. By the time we finished, we had over, I think about four or five hundred coming to take part on a week by week basis. And that initiative just went, it just grew arms and legs. So much so that uh, we were then invited to sing at various uh, events. We then recorded a song which we then used to promote and uh, raise money uh, for Men's Health UK. And it ran for about 12, 12, 18 months. And I wanted to somehow bring it to a conclusion whereby we could really demonstrate on the differences it made to colleagues' uh, wellbeing. And we have some real powerful stories of the benefits it made to colleagues. One example being is we had a colleague in the Halifax uh, site who had had a brain injury and he was struggling with his uh, speech, with his balancing, etc. And he came along to take part and it's made a huge difference to him, to him in the workplace. But for me, it's not just making a difference to the work with his work colleagues, it's a difference it made to his partner as well, to his family. They were seeing a different type of person because he was part of the community, taking part and doing something he enjoyed. People really enjoyed him come along every Wednesday. So after 12 months, after doing a number, I don't say gigs, but a number of events across the Lloyds Banking groups, we weren't that good. Uh, <laughs> Sell out stadium tours. <laughs> we decided to bring all the teams, all the groups together to an event in London. So we had the cries from all the five core sites across the whole of the UK come together to demonstrate what they've learned. And it wasn't demonstrating that I can sing. It was demonstrating that through the power of singing, we can create and look after our mental and emotional well-being. And we created a community. And that's the ultimate. It created a community of people who had their own challenges in life, you know, personal challenges, work challenges, mental health challenges. But we all got together and there was no stigma. There was no boundaries. It was a case of supporting each other. And people have now gone on to help each other as part of those groups. And we got together in London and we uh, performed to a number of uh, our exec and to a number of invited guests. And it was phenomenal. It was it really, really was uh, phenomenal. And that was a culmination of, you know, weeks of practicing. But it was just a case of just, I suppose you used the word celebrating, not celebrating the success of what we've done, but celebrating that through the power of doing something different we were again putting the mental health and wellbeing agenda on the stage, literally on the stage, yeah. to say, this is why we've done it. Not first to demonstrate we can sing, but to demonstrate that through our own individual challenges, we're coming together and we're showing you that there's no stigma, there's nothing to be ashamed of, that we can just, we're just like anybody else. And that was what it's about, it's about pulling that community together. Oh, amazing. I love it. And, and, and so say if I'm an organisation um, and I want to, post-pandemic, consider something different, how would you recommend people go about bringing a choir and a singing group into, um, into their organisation? So, I mean, I'm more than happy as part of this podcast to share details of a company that, that we use. I mean, they've, they've been phenomenal with us, but they've been doing a lot of things actively through the pandemic as well. Great. Uh, and I would highly recommend them, highly recommend them. Oh, perfect. Well, yeah, we'll link them in the, we'll link them in the show notes, no problem at all. Oh, great. And yeah, like I say, hopefully it's not too long before we can get back to those great live social events that make those things possible. I'd love to almost say if there's a a digital equivalent or just in terms of digital tools in general, I'd love to hear what you provide for your team and yeah, any any specifics that come to mind. 
Yeah, we've done a, we've done a lot certainly within within our division, but predominantly across uh, Lloyd's Banking Group, and we, we promote, for example, Headspace. So we make the Headspace app available to our colleagues free of charge. Yeah. And sometimes people are quite skeptical of using an app for well-being. How can I improve my well-being in an app? But sometimes you've got to try these things that you wouldn't normally try out. And, you know, it's got things on there around sleep hygiene, nutrition, you know, conversations, you know, that social contact, access, some really, really useful tools on there. And, you know, colleagues who probably in the past have been quite, you know, maybe not even thought about it, have now gone into it and given it a go. And it's made a difference. And I'm a great believer that sometimes you have to take small steps to them and eventually take big strides. And it's just these small incremental steps, trying something different, you know, it can make a huge difference, you know, to people's uh, well-being. You know, in addition to we've been the stuff around financial well-being, because again, there's a stigma that's associated with financial uh, difficulty. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you don't address that, ultimately that leads into mental health-related conditions. So again, we're trying to remove the stigma, not just on the word mental health, but other things that can cause the mental health related conditions, and you know, financial uh, difficulties, etc. So we've done a bit, you know, a lot within that uh, space as well. Great, and and I'm interested in how how you might survey the kind of the well being of your team, like, and how do you kind of tr- keep your finger on the pulse of, of where they're at, um, and, and any you know anything that you'd recommend to the audience about things that you that you, that you like and enjoy and, and, and find successful. Yeah, I mean, what we've what we've uh, certainly been doing over the last twelve months has been doing a number of surveys. One to make sure if it's the our colleagues are managing. Uh, with you know working from home because you know I think a lot of colleagues have found it difficult within our division around the separating those boundaries between home and work. Yeah. But one thing I personally think's worked and what I've been running across group transformation is I call them fireside chats, right. where we get a small group of people together uh, and with a senior member or an executive member to come along and hear firsthand how colleagues are managing, hear some of the challenges that our colleagues are facing into. And for me, it's also broken down some of that hierarchy that may have existed in the past, whereby colleagues never got an opportunity to speak to a senior executive or a senior person. But, you know, our colleagues have seen, you know, uh, also our executives have seen, you know, people's uh, living rooms, you know, people in the background, family members. So home has become work and work has become home. So a lot of that hierarchy has been removed. But those fireside chats are so powerful because, one, you hear firsthand, it also gives then something tangible you can work towards that maybe colleagues are having difficulty with. And it tends to be you know, a lot of similar themes, being homeschooling, being you know, spinning many plates, being working long hours, how to get that physical exercise, how to turn off from multiple Teams meetings. You know, some of the, so the common themes that we can then address. Because like I said before, I think it's, we're in a situation now whereby we have to listen differently, we have to act differently, and that's why the fireside chats been a really really powerful tool in that great oh yeah and what a way to kind of break down barriers in hierarchical institutions and to say look yeah everybody's human everybody's everybody's kind of in their own little office or lounge or kitchen area or whatever and um yeah what a great way to yeah to, to, again we talk about the power of connection and what a great way to connect with with you know with all members and to get you know to get an understanding of where people are coming from so martin i'd love to hear your thoughts on what mental health initiatives you kind of see coming up in 2021 and beyond and some things you'd love to see emerge? I think what we need to do is we need to continue to listen to our colleagues, listen to what's the, what's needed. Because I think sometimes in the past, a lot of organisations can preempt uh, with what colleagues and what their teams need as opposed to what they really need. 
So for me, it's around just continue to listen to some of the challenges that, you know, people got to face. And I think I touched it before. Personally, this is my personal view. You know, when we've had his jabs and his injections, etc., that for me is not the end of this pandemic. In some respects, it's probably maybe the start of it, in the fact that some of these challenges around, you know, medical conditions are still to play out. You know, we will have colleagues who pre-pandemic would have never given it an inclination around the mental health, the physical health or their emotional health. But now they probably find themselves that they are struggling with certain aspects of their, their well-being. So I think it's a case of doing things, initiatives that are innovative, that are different and which engages uh, with the colleague. So, you know, that can be complemented around, you know, statutory training. But again, it's, you know, bringing people in, you know, because colleagues' personal stories and are very, very powerful. And I think we have to continue to show that vulnerability. Uh, and I think it's just a case of trying to, you know, where can we build back better? We've got an opportunity now that the pandemic has given us to build back better for the future around mental health and well-being and I think you know mental health advocates which we've got within our division will play an important part in that in cascading that message cascading initiatives and also continue to create that safe psychological environment that people can come forward uh, to seek the help but I think line managers have got a huge part to play I think sometimes a lot of pressure put on line managers because they always think they've got the answers to everything uh, be work-related be mental health and well-being and, and they, they don't and I think we need to continue equipping our line managers with the right tools, the right techniques that they can support colleagues because they tend to be the first person a colleague who may be in crisis or maybe having difficulty would go to. And a line manager is no different to anybody else. They might be having their own personal challenges, their own work challenges. So again, how can we support the line managers whilst they're also supporting potentially individual team members? Oh, lovely. And I love the way you present. And I'd love to, you know, I'd love to hear more about your, you know, the training. I guess that's something you're, you're keeping house. But if you ever share on LinkedIn, let, let us know because yeah, allowing people to understand what, you know, what are the warning signs you might be able to see on a Teams meeting or a Zoom call or whatever. Um, you know, just just a brief insight into those skills, I think, uh, is a really powerful message that, that we, you know, that, that we can pick up and, you know, and maybe, we have, you know, maybe we have a discussion one time and you think, oh, actually, you know, I, I remember seeing that. And I remember, you know, maybe, maybe this is a cue for me to, to say, you know, how, how are you doing? Is there anything I can do to help? you um those kind of conversations if people want to connect with you what's the best way to connect uh, through linkedin uh, tom i'm very active on linkedin so yeah for anyone else linking with me then uh, linkedin's probably the best place well, th- you know, thank you so much for your time and, and, and thank you so much for sharing your, your really powerful story. And, and the world needs powerful advocates of mental health who've come, you know, have been through a dark patch and come through the other side like yourself. So I'm personally really proud to have you on and, and thank you so much for sharing your story. My pleasure, Tom. My pleasure. This podcast is brought to you by Loonbase. Loonbase is an all-in-one wellbeing platform for your workplace. Listeners of this podcast can get an exclusive deal. Just simply go to loonbase.com forward slash champions. That's loonbase.com forward slash champions to find out more.